0: You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. Good morning. Glad you're with us today. If you have your Bibles, you can open up to Exodus chapter 3. Exodus chapter 3. We introduced uh, chapter 3 last week as we began to look at Moses' encounter uh, at the burning bush. Uh, we said specifically last week that God reveals himself as Holy meaning he is infinitely separate from us, yet he also reveals himself as compassionate, meaning he is eternally connected to us, making it our responsibility to both obey and trust him always. And so we looked at um, what Moses experiences there uh, at the burning bush, and how initially there's uh, a major focus on the holiness of God, where uh, Moses is told to, to remove his shoes, that he's on holy ground, and there's this reverence and respect that's expected there uh, as God begins to interact with Moses. But then the, the holiness piece transitions to a compassionate piece where uh, up to that point God is communicating this aboveness, we said last week, where, where God is separate and different Um, and infinitely um, above us, but then also he's among us, meaning that he cares about what's happening with us. He shows compassion and concern by involving himself in our lives, and so he tells Moses, "Um, I know where my people are at. I know how they're suffering, and I've I've developed a plan to rescue them. Um, So I challenged you last week to see How God communicates with Moses and how that ties into our life. He communicates to Moses, I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He includes Moses in this community of care that goes back to the beginning of him revealing himself to mankind. We're a part of that community care today. We're a part of the same community of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, God's people that God has chosen to care for. We talked about our place value with God, that we get our value from him, that he's the holy God, but he's the caring God, and so we're valuable because he chooses to care for us, and we talked about the role that we get to play in God's plans, that He's communicating this holiness and this compassion and this care. And so Moses is a bystander listening to this. But then at the end of where we were at last week, God steps in and says, Moses, you're a part of the solution, right? In verse 10, he tells Moses, he says, come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel out of Egypt. It's not just that God communicates these plans that are going to happen outside of Moses. He's communicating truth. He's communicating hope. But he says, Moses, you're going to be a part of it. You're going to be used by me to bring this great rescue. So we challenged you last week to, to think about your own role in God's kingdom that we have a responsibility to help rescue others with the gospel, that we have a responsibility to communicate the same message of hope to those that we come in contact with. And so I left you last week with application points of, just like Moses was called to take his shoes off, we need to take our shoes off too. We need to take our shoes off as both a, uh, an expression of reverence and an expression of rest in the revelation of who God is. I told you, sometimes you go into people's houses, you take your shoes off out of respect because their house is nicer than yours. Other times you take your shoes off because you're comfortable in that house. This is a place where, where I feel at home, right? We have both with God. There's a level of respect and reverence that we give to God because of who he is but there's a comfort level that we enjoy with him too that allows us to take our shoes off in both cases. But then we also said we need to put our shoes on and be ready to serve him, be ready to respond. Told you that uh, at the end of verse 10, the response should have been by Moses, okay, I'm coming. You're sending me, I'm going with you. And yet we told you last week, we're gonna see there's some insecurity on Moses's part where he hesitates to respond to what God has called him to. And that's where we're gonna step in today, seeing his sovereignty over our insecurity. We've seen that he's sovereign over the chaos of our life, right? We've seen that he is sovereign over our own choices, particularly when we make bad choices, when we make mistakes. God still is sovereign. He's still carrying out his plans. Our choices don't disrupt what he's doing. We're going to see today that our insecurities uh, find their, um, their reassurance in his sovereignty, all right? Our summary sentence for today. God calls each of us to serve him with an expectation that his presence qualifies us and his promises equip us with all we need to communicate the message of hope that God cares and he is coming. God calls each of us to serve him with an expectation that his presence qualifies us and his promises equip us with all we need to communicate the message of hope that God cares And he is coming for our kids because God is always with us. We can do anything he calls us to do for him. What we're going to see today uh, is the first part of a two-part series of Moses' insecurities, particularly where he starts by uh, expressing a lack of faith in himself. God, you've got the wrong guy. I can't do what you've called me to do. And then also a lack of knowledge or a lack of uh, awareness of who God is to even be able to carry this out right? And these are two things that oftentimes we will appeal to as well when we get a challenge, maybe in a Sunday morning setting where we're called to be a part of God's plans. We're called to help bring rescue to people who are in bondage, right? We'll say, hey, I'm not the guy or I'm not the girl for that, right? Like, I don't have the abilities. I don't have the, uh, the, the equipment to do that. Or Um, I don't have the knowledge to do that. There's gonna be questions that would come up. As I try to to tell other people about Jesus, there would be questions raised that I wouldn't know how to answer. Therefore, I shouldn't even start the conversation. That's kind of Moses' line of thinking. Hey, I'm not the guy for this. And even if I was, I don't know enough to be able to do what you're asking me to do. I'm gonna go and start trying to tell the people of Israel what's happening. They're gonna ask questions and then I'm not gonna know the answers. Therefore, you should send somebody else. Let's look and see in the text how this unfolds in verse 11. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, but I will be with you and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they asked me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. And you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. And now please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that, he will let you go. And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go, you shall not go empty, but each woman shall ask of her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. You shall put them on your sons and on your daughters. So you shall plunder the Egyptians. Exodus has been speaking to us up to this point in times of our greatest needs. When we are tempted to say, uh, that God has forsaken us, that God has forgotten us, that things aren't as they should be, Exodus helps us to remember that God is not forsaken, that God has not forgotten, and that God is working to make all things right, that he is unfolding his plan. Now we're transitioning to see that each of us has a role to play in God's kingdom, using our gifts, using our talents, using our resources to bring glory to him. It's the idea that we bring people into the kingdom to know Christ and we encourage and spur those already in the kingdom on in their pursuit of Christ. So there's like a a joint idea here of what our responsibility is as believers today. We're called to bring people into the kingdom, to help rescue them from sin, into relationship with Christ. And then once they're here, the New Testament encourages us to spur each other on to good works, to stir it up in each other to where we pursue Christ more and more, and we're all to play a role in that. Because of who God is, he graciously uses imperfect people to accomplish this will, right? So, so you can hear that, that admonition that we're to bring people into the kingdom to know Christ. We're to encourage and spur those already in the kingdom to pursue Christ deeper. And you can say, that's not me, right? I'm, I'm not the person to do that. There's other people that can do that. I don't know enough to do that. It's exactly what Moses responded and said to God, right? God uses imperfect, inadequate people to accomplish his will. Think about what we learned in Ephesians chapter 3 verse 20 during our Ephesians study. He does far more than we could ask or think, right? He's in the business of exceeding our expectations with who he uses and how he uses them. So whoever you are today, and wherever you feel you, you lie with regards to your own qualifications to serve God in his kingdom, let's have an open mind here to hear what the word has to say to us today, because it speaks to our insecurities, it speaks to our inadequacies. And the message that God has for us today is that he answers in such a way where all of his responses to Moses are tied to his sovereign power. All right, we're going to see that, that God doesn't come in and correct Moses' thinking about himself. He corrects Moses' thinking about God, right? He doesn't come in and say, Moses, you got it all wrong. You're totally qualified for this, right? He doesn't do what we would typically do, right? Somebody comes to you and says, you know, I've been asked by my boss to do this, and, and I just don't think I'm cut out for it. I don't think I'm good enough to do it. What do we typically respond and say? Oh, yes, you are, Right? Like you have all the talent, all the ability, all the qualification to do that. That's typically how we respond. Somebody comes to us with insecurities and we start trying to reassure them about who they are. Moses comes to God and says, I can't do this. And there's not any part of God coming to Moses and saying, yes, you can because of who you are. Everything is tied to, yes, you can because of who I am. We're gonna see that how it unfolds in the next couple of weeks. All right, let's start by looking at this week's sermon and this week's text by number one, embrace God's presence as your greatest qualification. Embrace God's presence as your greatest qualification. right, Moses begins his string of excuses with excuse number one being a lack of credentials. Who am I, right? Who am I to do this, God? Who am I to be on your short list of people to rescue the Hebrews out of Egypt? I don't have the credentials to do it. Number one, Moses expresses doubt about his ability to carry out God's commands due to his lack of ability. He expresses doubt about his ability to carry out God's commands due to his lack of ability. It's not that Moses is questioning the plan in general, right? Like somebody needs to rescue the people out of Egypt. It just can't be me. It's just not me. I think in Moses' mind, he probably feels like he missed his prime, right? There would have been a day where if God had communicated this to Moses, he would have jumped all over it. And maybe that's exactly why God waited an additional 40 years to even talk to him about it, right? We saw 40 years earlier, he's the prince of Egypt. He does have in his heart this idea, this desire to rescue his people from the Egyptians. At that time, he probably does feel like he is able. He probably does feel like he is qualified. Right? And it's in that moment when God allows him to experience failure. It's now at a point where Moses says, I'm not the guy, that God says, now you exactly are the guy. Right? He's missed his prime. He's been relegated to being a shepherd for the past 40 years. He doesn't possess the skill now. He may even be having thoughts about his own reputation. Right? His reputation with Israel. Remember, they've labeled him a murderer. They ran him out of Egypt. His reputation wouldn't seem to allow for God to use him either. I mean, imagine... Like we're in this this season now of election, right? And like the election seemingly has turned to this big smear campaign for both sides, right? It's less about what I can do for you and more about what the other person can't do for you because of what he's done in his past, right? Imagine the smear campaign that the Israelites could have run against Moses, right? Moses comes parading in and says, hey, I'm here to lead you out, right? If they had commercials at that time, all the commercials would have been, here's a guy who killed in his past, right? Like all the commercials we're hearing is this guy threatened to kill in his past, right? This guy did kill in his past. The smear campaign would have been everywhere. Moses is like, it can't be me, right? Like there is nothing hidden. These people know me. They know I killed, right? This can't be me. I'm not qualified to do it. God responds, number two, with reassurance about his own presence as the key ingredient for Moses's success. Moses's inadequacy is met with God's sufficiency, God always responds with our doubts and needs for assurance with his promises. He always responds with our doubts and needs for assurance with his promises. From God's perspective, it doesn't matter who Moses is. God is and God is with him in this passage. God is and with. Moses says, Who am I, I to go to Pharaoh bring children of Israel out of Egypt? God says, but I will be with you, and this will be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Notice God doesn't respond with encouragement about Moses' qualifications and preparations. You know, he doesn't tell him, hey, buddy, you grew up in Egypt. You've got all the training to do this. On top of that, I've been spending 40 years getting you ready for the wilderness by making you a shepherd. Like, you're the guy for this. He doesn't do any of that. He doesn't want Moses to trust in those gifts more than him. In our perspective, we can look at this, though, and say, there's nobody better for the job than Moses, right? He's Egyptian enough to confront Egypt. He's Hebrew enough to love the slaves. And he spent 40 years as a shepherd. Like, he is the guy to do this. He feels inadequate. He feels insecure to do it. And God doesn't do anything to reinforce his assurance piece beyond reassuring him about God's own presence. A call to serve God always comes with a promise of God's presence with us. We'll kind of jump ahead here in the Old Testament and see some examples of God calling people to serve him and always reassuring his presence with them. Joshua chapter one, verse five. God is talking to Joshua now, who certainly feels inadequate to fill the shoes of Moses. God says, no man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life, just as I was with Moses so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. Judges chapter six, when Gideon is called upon God to lead and to rescue his people. In Judges chapter six, verse 16, and the Lord said to him, but I will be with you and you shall strike the Midianites as one man. Jeremiah chapter one, verse eight. Jeremiah chapter one, verse eight. God tells Jeremiah, do not be afraid of them, for I am with you to deliver you, declares the Lord. Anytime God calls us to do something for him, he reassures us with his presence. I put in my notes, the I'll always be with you promise can never be overstated. It's our greatest treasure. Let me say that again. The I'll always be with you promise can never be overstated. It's our greatest treasure. Matthew 28, 20, Jesus tells his disciples, you're going to go and make more disciples. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Right? Jesus says, I'm going to be with you. Hebrews chapter 13. I say it's our greatest treasure because in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5, it says, keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. Right? The things of this world is not your treasure. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. That's our greatest treasure. That's our greatest hope. The I'll always be with you promise can never be overstated. It's our greatest treasure. He is always with us. He's always with us. Now just like Moses, we start to to maybe ponder the question, who is always with us? Who is this God that's always with us? It's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob who has shown us what it looks like for him to be with his children. Just stop and think about that for a second. Right? We're gonna leave today and we're all gonna face whatever this week brings our way. And God is telling us today, I go with you and I'm always with you and I'll never leave you and I'll never forsake you. And it's the same God who went with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. It's this God who has a tremendously long track record of being with his children and providing for his children. That's why the Old Testament remains relevant today, right? We don't just see it as the old covenant that can be swept away and dismissed as though it has no relevance now that the new covenant's here. No, the old covenant gives us this massive track record of God's faithfulness. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is still the God of us today The same God who took care of these people in the past is the God who takes care of us today. God gives Moses this glimpse promise. This glimpse promise that, hey, you're gonna know that I'm with you because here's what's gonna happen. He says um, in verse 12, I'll be with you and this shall be the sign for you that I've sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. You will worship me with Israel on this mountain. That's his assurance. He says, it's already been planned. God's like, I've already scheduled a date with you and I plan to keep it. Like, like this is happening. Like this is the assurance that, that this will happen. God's already planned the victory party. He's already planned the celebration. He says, Moses, you're gonna join me here with the people. Sometimes uh, football coaches get really bold and they, they print like region championship shirts or state championship shirts before the game happens right? And it works all well and good when you win, right? I've been a part of some of those settings where we've won region championships, and, like, our coach will pull out boxes of shirts, and he's like, I knew you could do it. Like, I already printed the shirt, and you're like, wow, that's a lot of faith, right? Who knows how many times boxes are thrown away because coaches do that, and it doesn't turn out that way. I had one of our coaches from middle school this year say, hey, let's go ahead and print our shirts before the championship, and I was like, no, like I don't, I don't do that. Like that just stresses me out to have all that money spent and then we may not be able to use them, right? God's got the victory party already planned here, right? Like there is no question about whether it will or won't happen. He's got the region shirts printed. Like we're gonna come to the mountain and we are going to celebrate because I will gain this victory. The assurance given to Moses and what he's called to do is that God will be with him. It's our greatest qualification God's going to call all of us to do something in his kingdom. And our first inclination is going to be to look at our resume, to look at our qualifications, to see, am I the right person for the job? And God's response and answer to us will always be, yes, because my presence is with you. The implication here, my ability is tied to who God is, making it possible for me to serve him effectively in whatever he calls me to. My ability is tied to who God uh, God is, making it possible for me to serve him effectively in whatever he calls me to. We have an option here. We can say, I can't do this, therefore I won't do it. Or we can choose option two, which says, I can't do this, but he can, therefore I will do it. That's what God was calling Moses to, right? He's breaking him down here because again, this is all about God being known and all about God getting the glory And so he's tearing Moses down and making sure that there is no ounce of self-sufficiency in Moses, right? Moses is going to do this, but it's going to be God who accomplishes it. And Moses is gonna know that because Moses knows he can't do this without God. We need to embrace God's presence as our greatest qualification. He calls each of us to serve him. The expectation is that we see his presence as the piece that qualifies us to do it, whatever it is. Number two. We embrace God's promises as our greatest message. We embrace God's promises as our greatest message. Moses' first excuse, a lack of credentials. Who am I? God says it doesn't matter. Here's who I am. Moses' second excuse, a lack of content. Who are you? Who are you? What if they ask what your name is and I don't know your name? How can I, how can I really verify that you sent me? Is kind of his next line of thinking. He says in verse 13, then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? Right? This is the common excuse that so many Christians use for never getting into spiritual conversations with other people. Right? I can't have a conversation with my lost coworker because what if they ask a question that I'm unprepared to answer? And we justify not getting into those conversations for fear that we'll look silly or or uneducated or unknowledgeable about the faith that we supposedly have. There's a couple of responses to that. One, we need to be pursuing a knowledge of the God that we want to proclaim to others, right? Like like we need to examine and say, have I been lazy in my pursuit? Have I been lazy in my pursuit, right? Um, It's easy to maybe look to spiritual leaders and say, hey, they're qualified because of, the education they gained, and, and um, the time spent in God's Word kind of outside of normal daily life. I'm going to tell you, um, did I go to Liberty University for four years to get an undergraduate degree and a spiritual degree? Yes. Did I get a master's degree there too? Yes. I'm going to tell you, I remember far more about dorm life than I do about class life, if I'm being honest with you. Like, like when I, when, I, when I think about my own spiritual growth and the knowledge that I have about God's word, I don't think about specific professors and classes that I took. Now, when, I talk to, when I'm hanging out with my best friend, Rob, who's at Snowbird, um, he will talk about like the classes that we took and the impact those classes had on him. And he'll be like, remember when we were taking this class and the professor said this? And I'm like, oh yeah, like I totally remember that. I have no clue what he's talking about most of the time right? Like, most of my class time was spent, how do I get back to the dorm and play in the Madden tournament that my group has formulated on the dorm, right? Like, when is our next intramural softball game, right? Like, I was all about the dorm life and the student life aspect of school, and there wasn't as much retention as I would like from the classes that I took. No, God has grown me in my own time in his word, right? It's been me dedicating time to pursue him, so not this formal education, I say that to tell you whatever, whatever you're thinking as an excuse for why you can't know God on a deeper level needs to be removed because it doesn't require formal education to know him on a deep level. It's you prioritizing and saying, I'm gonna be in his word and I'm gonna know him and I'm gonna understand the things that he's communicated. Moses says, what if I don't know the answers to some of these questions? Moses expresses doubt about his ability to convey God's identity when questions arise, rather than focusing on the content he does have, he justifies his hesitancy by focusing on what he does not have. I mean, think about what he already does have, right? He, he, he grew up and was raised with enough faith content to spurn Egypt. That's what Hebrews tells us, that he, he reached an age where he looked around and said, the things of God are greater than the things of this world. I'm going to leave Egypt and identify with God's people. That's extreme maturity of faith to make a decision like that because most of us, if we were put in a position of being a prince of a nation with everything at our disposal and given the option to stay and enjoy or to disassociate and identify with God's people in poverty, I don't know if my faith is strong enough. Maybe if I'd have paid attention better in some of my classes, it would be. I don't know if my faith is strong enough today to say that I would spurn the things of this world in that position like Moses did. Man, his mom and his dad taught him well. He had content. He had sufficient content to put his faith in that that could be communicated to other people. On top of that, he's standing before a burning bush, right, that doesn't get consumed by the fire that's talking to him, right? Like, there is no lack of story to tell people, right? Like, he is not lacking for content, right? Like, what, what if they don't know, what if I don't know your name and they ask? Who cares? Like, you just keep talking about the burning bush, right? Like, that'll keep their attention for a long time, right? Like, he's got content to communicate, but he's so hesitant because what if I get pushed into a corner and I don't have an answer? Number two, God responds with reassurance by reminding him of who he is and what he has promised. What if I don't know your name? Verse 14, God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. And thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. His name communicates that he's all sufficient in himself. His name communicates attributes about himself. Essentially, he's saying, I don't need anyone because I am the I am. Now I think this name is important because think about it, Israel's living in Egypt where there's all kinds of gods being worshipped, right? It might be a fair question because again, 400 years they've been in this setting. There's probably some that have held on to the faith of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. There's others that have probably wandered from it. You know, they got the sun god Ra and other gods that are being presented to them regularly, it's it's probably a fair question to say that if he shows up and says, hey, God told me this, they're gonna say, which one? Because there's a lot of them around here. Which one's talking to us? Which one's planning to deliver us? Let us start worshiping this God that you're talking about. And God says, I'm the God before all of this. Before you came down to Egypt, I'm the I am of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, right? He's communicating who he is through this name. He's communicating attributes about himself. He reveals an understanding of his name as Yahweh constructed from the Hebrew verb to be. Now, most of your Bibles are gonna translate this as Lord in all caps, right? So big L and then O-R-D in smaller capitalization so that you know this is in the original text when God's name is being used. What the name conveys is most important. He's the, he is, the no beginning, the no end. He is the cause of everything to be. Romans chapter 11 Romans chapter 11, verse 36. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever, amen. That's what's being communicated through this name. God says, tell them the I am who I am sent you. It's that he is eternal and unchangeable. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's not getting better, he's not getting worse. He is who he wants to be, and nobody shapes him into that. That's what's really really important to know about our God is that he is completely unconstrained by outside factors, meaning he's not reliant upon anything to do what he wants to do. That ought to be so reassuring to us. He's he's not having to hope that other things happen so that he can then do what he wants to do. He's the I am, right? Right? Uh, we're coming out of World Cup season, we're in the midst of college football playoff season. There are teams who have to sit and wait to see if something else happens for their season to continue, right? There's teams in World Cup where they would have tied and needed something to happen so that they could advance, right? The points and, and how the standings fit. Like, I need this team to lose so that I can keep playing, right? There's college football teams today that are hoping and praying that a group of people will choose them to keep playing. God's not like that. He's the I am. He is unconstrained by outside external factors. He does what he wants to do regardless of what's happening around him. He is, and he always will be. Now, he chooses to constrain himself by his character and his promises, which is also reassuring to us. Doesn't have to worry about anything outside of him, but he obligates himself to his internal factors, who he is and what he has promised. It guarantees that he will deliver. He has the power to do it and the ability to do it. Now, this name becomes verification for Jesus when he makes claims to his own deity. Right? We go to John chapter 8. John chapter 8, Jesus identifies as the I am. John chapter 8, verse 58. This is so important because there's so much... uh, doubt that gets cast upon Jesus's identity people try to dismiss him as though he never claimed to be God he says in verse 58 of John chapter 8 Jesus said to them truly truly I say to you before Abraham was I am right and it was very clear to everybody that was listening it was very clear to the offspring of Abraham who worshiped the God of Abraham Isaac and Jacob what he was saying because in verse 59 it says they picked up stones to throw at him Why? Because he was claiming to be the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He was claiming to be the burning bush God. Jesus says, that's me. I am the I am. Verse 24, backing up in chapter 8 of John, tells us the dangers of not believing this. He says, I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Revelation chapter 1, verse 8 remember from our study in Revelation, Jesus identifying himself as God. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is, who was, and who is to come. I am the Almighty. He's the I am. He says, Moses, you tell him I'm the I am. I'm the God before them. I'm the God who goes before them as well. He also tells them to to communicate his word, his promises, not just who God is, but what God has said. He goes on to say in Exodus chapter three, let's look at verse 16. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, of Jacob has appeared to me saying, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt. And I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land that's occupied by all these people flowing with milk and honey. He goes on to tell Moses, these people, the elders of Israel, will listen to your voice. And you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. Let us go. But I know the king of Egypt, verse 19, will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my mighty hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that, he will let you go. And then I'm gonna give the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians and they're gonna plunder the Egyptians basically. They're gonna take all their riches with them. This is God's plan. This is what he plans to do. He has a story to tell. He says, go and tell Israel, I'm the God of the fame that they have heard about. I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I'm the same God now and I will always be the same God. The God who is promising to come and help is the God who has a pattern of coming and helping we know him better through his saving work and that's the same message we have today, right? We are called to communicate this same message. Back to our summary sentence. We communicate the message of hope that God cares and he is coming and that's, that's, that's the simplicity of our message. God cares and he is coming. God cares about your sin. He cares about your sin because he's holy. He's transcendent and he's above us and he will come and judge it He cares about your suffering. He's coming to help, right? That's the simplicity of our message. He cares and he is coming. That's the message of hope, the hope message that we give to others. Sometimes we worry too much about what we don't know that we fail to proclaim what we do, right? Think about, uh, so John chapter nine, right after what we just saw Jesus saying, I am the I am. John chapter nine, he heals the man who's blind, right? And there's all this discussion about man, is Jesus really who he claims to be? I mean, he did this on the Sabbath, and can this really be him? Like, that shouldn't be that he's doing it on this day and all this discussion, right? At the end of the day, this guy was blind and he can see, right? Like, that, that should have been the sign and the wonder, right? At the end of the day, the burning bush is talking. That should be good enough. That should be plenty of content for you, Moses, to go and share, I love what the blind guy says, though. He kind of interrupts the discussion because they're like, is Jesus sinful, not sinful? Should he have done this? He's like, hey guys, I don't know if he should have done this or not. I just know he did. And I was blind and now I can see, right? It's almost like he's like, hey, I don't understand all of who Jesus is yet, but here's what I do know is that he healed me and I was blind and that should be enough for us, right? Like we ought to be able to communicate with people that are around us and say, this is what God has done to me. Well, yeah, well, tell me about this. Yeah, I don't know about that. Like I'll have to read and maybe ask somebody else, but I don't, I don't have the answer to that question yet. But here's what I do know, right? Like That's how Moses' conversation could have gone. Hey, what's his name? I don't know. He talked to me through a burning bush, though, which was pretty significant for me, right? Like, like that, All of us have that as part of our story, right? It wasn't a burning bush experience necessarily, but all of us were rescued from darkness to light. All of us had our eyes open when they were previously blinded. Right, so all of us do have the same testimony as the blind guy. Hey, I don't know the answer to that question, but here's what it was. I was blind and now I see. Like The things of this world were important, now they're not anymore. Right, my hope was in the things of this world, now it's in Jesus coming and helping me. That's the content that we have. It's all the content that we need. And he goes with us to help us communicate that. We're called to tell others of God's compassion and God's promises, just like Moses was to tell Israel. He says, tell the elders, the people this. The God of our people knows he cares and he can do something about it. It's the same message that we have. You're in dialogue with your coworker. God cares and he can do something about it because every one of us have coworkers that complain about their plight, right? All of us have coworkers that complain about their circumstances. All of us have neighbors and family members who complain about their circumstances. Let me tell you about a God who cares. Let me tell you about a God who can do something about that. That's what Moses was told to go back and tell the people of Israel. God knows, he cares, and he's going to do something about it. God reassures Moses, some people are going to listen and respond. Some people won't until judgment comes. But at the end, there's going to be a reversal of the fortunes. That's the same message we have, right? Like We're told that not everybody's going to listen to us. God tells Moses, you're going to go back and the people are going to listen. The Egyptians aren't going to listen. Pharaoh won't get around to listening until judgment comes, which is true about some of the people we encounter. They aren't going to bow and they aren't going to confess him as Lord until he's standing here at the second coming and it's too late. They'll still bow and confess, but eternity with him will be past. Right? What we do know is there's a reversal of fortune that's coming." just like he promised to Israel. Israel's gonna believe Pharaoh won't, plagues are gonna come, rescue's gonna happen, and the Egyptians' hearts are gonna be changed, and they're gonna pay Israel for all the work they've been doing for them. Isn't that neat to see how God, in his justice, makes sure that the slaves get paid for all those years of service? I mean, it's enough pay where they've got enough to carry over to to construct the tabernacle. I mean, this is, this, is pretty, this is pretty neat to see God's sovereignty. It's not just about bringing plagues and defeating the army of Egypt. He's changing hearts in the midst of it. The same hearts who we saw at the beginning of Exodus who uh, started to fear Israel and then started to loathe Israel, right? Now, as they're walking out, they're like, hey, Israel, take all of our stuff with you, right? Like, like you have found favor with us. We can't wait to get rid of you. Take all of our stuff, I mean, jewels and gold and clothing, just being, uh, just being immersed on top of them. That's God changing hearts and moving situations. It's also God fulfilling promises, because in Genesis 15, he said, I'll rescue you, and I'm going to give you a ton of stuff when I do. That's God keeping promises. It's God keeping promises. It's God carrying out what he plans to do. And let me tell you something for our, for our youth. Stay with me right here because you're gonna you're gonna come to a day and age when you leave your parents' house and you're gonna go off to school or you're gonna you're gonna develop friendships with people and you're gonna be introduced to these new and potentially exciting theologies that that you didn't hear taught here at our church. Right? And and for some of you, you're gonna be exposed to a line of thinking that's oftentimes labeled as the openness of God. And it's an idea that the future isn't set that God hasn't determined where everything is going, that there's a reactionary piece to God where he's gonna let things happen and then he's gonna try to work and move and make things work out at the end. Let me tell you something, that that completely contradicts passages like this. If there's an openness to the future, then God can't schedule a date at the mountain and say, you're gonna be here worshiping me because I've already guaranteed the victory over Egypt. If there was an openness to how this was gonna play out, he can't print the region championship shirts without the threat of having to throw them away. I mean, there's not an openness to our future. He's made promises and he keeps those promises. So as you, as you leave your family's house and you start to deepen your faith, I mean, I encourage you to do that. Don't just let it be your parents' faith for the rest of your life. You've got to, you've got to own it and make it yours. But be cautious with the theologies that are introduced to you outside of the church setting. Because man, this, 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 this is important here because everything that's being reassured to Moses is that I've got this, that I'm completely in control of this. I go with you, I preserve you. I am the I am and I always will be. God's foundation stands and people will continue to respond that belong to him. 2 Timothy chapter two, 2 Timothy chapter two, verse 19. But God's firm foundation stands bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are his And let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. He knows and they will listen to him. Now think about this too. The goal of Exodus is for these people to get released so they can worship him, right? Like Moses is told, go tell Pharaoh, let my people go so we can go into the wilderness and make sacrifices and worship him. We need freedom to worship our God. I put in my notes just as a side note. We enjoy this as believers today, but do we maximize it? And we live in a country where it is free to worship Him. It is free to worship Him, and yet too oftentimes we don't. We don't worship Him freely. We're 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 in communication. Uh, one of my uh, my history department is in communication with a Christian school in Russia right now, and we're dialoguing about uh, our curriculum. And those guys over in Russia have to be super secretive about how they respond to our questions to not tip their government off as to what they're doing. But think about that. like, like Our kids are sitting in in this Christian school here enjoying this curriculum, oblivious to fact that across the world there's another group of kids that are getting the same type of curriculum and they're worried that their government's gonna find out about it. And we have freedom to worship him. We don't always maximize it like we should. It should be a reminder to us that we need to, we, need to be, we need to be aware of the fact that we have freedom to worship. We have freedom to talk to our coworkers about this kind of stuff, to our neighbors, to our family members, without fear of threat, really. We need to communicate the promises of hope that's been given to us. The implication, we must tell people who God is and what God says. We tell them about his past. We tell them about what he's doing in the present. We tell them about what he's going to do in the future. And going back to where we started We all play a role in this. We all play a role in in expanding God's kingdom, bringing people in, encouraging people once they're there. The Puritan Cotton Mather, who you've never heard of because I've never heard of him. Maybe you've heard of him. He says this, every Christian ordinarily should have a calling. That is to say, there should be some special business wherein a Christian should for the most part spend the most of his time. And this, that so he may glorify God. What's he saying there? He's saying that every Christian should have something, something unique and specific to them that they see as their calling, that they invest their time into to bring glory and honor to him. It's their way of building his kingdom. It's their niche. It's how they use their gifts and their resources to bring glory and honor to him. So I leave you with this application question. Are you doing anything in life currently that requires God's presence for success and allows for God's promises to be shared with those who don't know. Are you doing anything in life currently that requires God's presence for success and allows for God's promises to be shared with those who don't know? That's what we're called to. We're called to see his presence guaranteeing our success. It qualifies us. A lot of us avoid those type of things, though. We're like Moses, we only, we only do the things that we feel qualified to do. And if we're called to do something that we feel unqualified to do, we say, that's not me, that's not for me, I can't do that. God says, that's who I need because I'm gonna go with you and I'm gonna do it. I would challenge you to assess your life. Are you doing anything in life currently that requires God's presence? Are you doing anything in life that allows for God's promises to be shared with those who don't know those promises? Can you, can you point to things in life where you have an opportunity to share promises of God with people who don't know those promises? And I have it easy. I work at a school where I work with kids where I get the opportunity to teach God's word. So, so that's an easy box for me to check. But I have to be intentional to seize those opportunities myself even because I could get real complacent and real insecure and not do the things that, that I know God has called me to do even in that setting. And I challenge you to think about this question for your own life. Are you doing anything that requires God's presence? Doing anything that allows you to share God's promises with those who don't know? Let's pray together. God, we love you, we thank you that you speak to our insecurities because Lord, we all battle with it at times. We all desire to be gifted. We all desire to be well-equipped. But when we're honest with ourselves, most of us will admit that we don't feel that we are. Just like Moses, we say, who am I to do what God's called me to do? But God, we thank you that you don't try to argue with us and and change our way of thinking as though, hey, we are qualified to do this. You just come in and say that you're gonna go with us, which automatically qualifies us. God, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for being the I am. We thank you for being the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We thank you for laying this incredible historical pattern of faithfulness where we as your people today can cry out to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and know that just as you cared for them, you will care for us. Just as you led them and guided them, you will lead and guide us today. Lord, thank you for the promises that we have. Just like Moses was assured that he was to go and to speak truth and that some would listen, some wouldn't, but that ultimately rescue was coming. You've given us that same message of hope today with even further clarity because our message is greater than release from physical slavery here. We've got a message of hope that can go to anyone and everyone. Just as you communicated the message of hope in Christmas to the shepherds and to the wise men. God, the message of hope is that you care and that you're coming. God, help us to see that today. Help us to see it for our own life when we're tempted to think that you've forsaken us and forgotten us and that things aren't working out the way that they should. And help us to remember that you remember and that you care and that you've already planned the victory party. That we're going to worship you. You're going to gather people from every tribe, nation, and tongue and we are going to worship the lamb forever. We thank you for that assurance. Lord, help us to bring other people into it. Help us to see that you go with us so that we can communicate this hope to others. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.